and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share my conversation with Tommy Forstrom, Chief Product Officer in Residence at Products Labs. Tommy and I worked together while we were both at Shutterstock, and he ultimately was a VP of Product at Shutterstock. When he and I chatted for this interview, he was just getting ready to get started at Products Labs, where he works with Melissa Perry and the team at Insight Venture Partners to help growth stage startups develop the product leadership that they need. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So I thought maybe we could start by a little bit of background. Um, Tell us about your journey and how you ended up um, getting to be the the product management leader that you are today. Yeah, um, my journey, I I guess it's one of the more default product manager journeys. I mean, as if one exists, because as we all hopefully know, everybody comes into product in a very different way. Um, But I, I came into it through software engineering. I started out as a rank and file software engineer in my early 20s and like the late 90s. Um, most of my 20s, I just relatively unambitiously built software as just a coder drone. Um, I had other passions in life, so I never really thought of that as a career. Uh, it was more of a, a a way to make easy money. So. By the time I got to my late 20s, where I had to start actually thinking about adult things like careers and such, um, I started realizing I'm more interested in managing the work than doing the work. So I got into this like sidetrack of engineering management and like project management and like this. People didn't really talk about product that much. Like product was just a word in the in the role of like product owner in the Scrum process, but I still thought of like scrum as a software engineering thing back then and i didn't really think there was like a like back then it was like engineering orgs were kind of the you know decided what the roadmaps were and were on the hook for building things and then you kind of tacked on a little bit of design at some point to make it pretty but like all the stuff that we now understand to be in like the product room was like an engineering thing and then i found myself as a cto at a small startup doing things that you know, of course, a lot of it was building product and so forth, or building actual software. But a lot of my work was really product management. It was really like figuring out how to execute on the company's vision, um, what went into the roadmap, why, how we navigated our way forward, how we learned from our discoveries. And um, I started realizing that product is actually a you know a job in and of itself yeah. and at that point at that point i think the, the in- industry had started waking up to that realization as well and companies that weren't googles or facebooks were actually starting to hire product managers and i started getting really interested in that as a as a career and that got me on like this transitional path to kind of trying to navigate away from engineering because of course, when you have an engineering background, engineering CV, and like just a list of like engineering management and software engineer roles, people really don't want to hire you for anything else except like engineering jobs. So um, I really had to like 
prove myself as like a leader in product yeah. at the same time I was already in like 15 years into my career so I didn't really want like to start from square one but at the same time I didn't really have my credentials yet in product I, it was just like an amalgamation of roles in which I had been doing things like team building process development organization development they just none of them had a product stamp on it so I had to really kind of navigate through a number of like hybrid roles and, and force people to put the word product into my role just to make sure it was like on a path, like a transformation to being like pure product. And um, then I found myself at a larger company, Shutterstock, where I very quickly shifted from just product management to focus more on managing product management and kind of the people leadership and the organization and process leadership side of it. And that really got me excited. And I was exposed through a couple of really strong mentors, also to the business side of things that like my appetite kind of grew to explore like, well, what is like, what's beyond product? Like, is it just like building products no longer seem to just fulfill my appetite. I was like, I want to build organizations. I want to build companies. I want to build businesses. Of course, that's making a very grand statement of it. But still, I felt like every time I get a, ste a step further, I start realizing how many more steps there are. Yeah. But that's gotten me to where I'm right now, which is quote unquote product leadership, however we understand that, which is equal parts product leadership, meaning like taking a bigger step back to like understanding like product strategy and like one to three to five year roadmaps and trying to connect company missions, missions to like what we're executing against. But at least to me, more importantly, also, how do you groom people into product management? How do you expand their field of vision from what are people doing today to what are we doing this iteration to what are we doing the next iteration? What are we doing this quarter? What are we doing this year? What are we doing in this company in general? Trying to kind of bridge those or the steps, bring those steps together. And how do you bring groups of people together from different backgrounds, you know, designers, engineers, product people, and then like even the, the wider range of stakeholders, whether it's sales and marketing and business and content operations and whoever, how do you bring those people together to succeed and not just run in different directions? So those are the types of things I'm trying to work on today as much as possible. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. There were a couple of things in there that I'd love to hear some more about. So um, I think one of the things that really um, interests me is um, this idea of when did you realize that product management was a thing and how did you realize it? Like, when did you first hear the term and who who shared it with you and how crazy did everybody else think you were? Um, so I started executing on Scrum quite early and that brought the word product in the guise of product owner yeah. into my field of vision around 2007. I worked for a software agency that worked a lot for Nokia for years and Nokia was among its other successes, a really early adopter and evangelist for like the whole breadth of agile yeah. and thinking and, and executing on a, a pretty far scale out scrum especially back in those days before anybody had even thought about, well, what does yeah. like Scrum beyond a single product team mean? Um, so Nokia was 
really advanced in that. And that brought the whole concept of, hey, there's maybe something that funnels this stuff together as a representative of the business, of the customer, of the whoever um, in the role of product owner. But I, I, in that space, it still almost always ended up being like a business manager or it ended up being some sort of like GM or program manager or something that ended up being the quote unquote product owner. So I never thought of it as like a, a job. But then I think the first time that I really paid more attention to it was around 20, early 2012, late 2011, when the startup I was working at, somebody was like, hey, you all probably need a product manager, need to hire a product manager. And I was like, what does this kind of person do? <laughs> um, and, and then that came, like th that thought pattern ended up with me and realizing like, wait, actually... I already do most of those things and the things that that person would be doing, I should actually be doing. I was like, wow, well, actually, maybe this is a thing worth considering. And that really rapidly led to like, hey, but that's actually what I want to do. Yeah. All of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a similar uh, timeline. As, I'm, as you're telling me your story, I'm thinking back and I'm realizing um, I think it was around 2011 that I first said, Hey, what I'm doing is product management. And I was working at a small enough company that I was able to go to my bosses and say, um, can we make that my title? And I said, sure. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to tell you all what this means. <laughs> um, it's so weird how many stories, especially stories in product management usually involve a point where that person has said like, Hey, why don't we call me a product manager from here on out? And yes. Presto Changeo, that person is now on like ladder one of their career into product management. Yeah. I've also heard a lot of stories where somebody um, somebody else says, hey, I think you're a product manager. And uh, sometimes from what I hear that that works out really well, it turns out that they just didn't know about this career path, but it was really great for them. And sometimes I've heard stories where, you know, maybe that wasn't quite the right fit, but somebody thought that would be for them because of what they were doing. Right. And then like quite often it can also, like product can be a weird kind of um, like, a person who's hopped from role to role, from department to department, never really finding a home, product usually ends up being kind of that, well, this is a little bit of everything solution to a lot of people, which is great. I mean, that's great that product can essentially provide a home for all the misfits yes. <laughs> that don't really feel at ease in any other thing. And it gives them the ability to kind of mix and match a little bit of every ultimate generalist yeah. role. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. So um, I know that the, you know, sort of going through those um, phases, you get to something where you're interested in the bigger picture. Um, and I'm kind of curious to hear maybe what is a story that, that helped you realize how important that bigger picture is or the, you know, what, what are the, how did you start to see that the impact of how the whole team is led affects the product that you cared about? Right. Um, I think I, I struggled with that for a long time, especially coming from coming from engineering, which is in some ways a very tough path to come into product from. Because when when you're deeply steeped in IC work and you're kind of in there in the day to day grind, building specific nitty gritty features and and obsessing over like how to execute on them. Um, it's really easy to not see the forest from the trees. And it's been 
a big part of my journey has been to unlearn a lot of that stuff and like almost like force myself to ignore the details yeah. which sometimes can turn against you like i that's one of the many 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 ways in which i know i need to get better at my job is i need to be a lot more detail oriented but i would argue that that's that state that i'm in right now is because i've for years now I, i've meticulously forced myself to distance myself from the details yeah i have such a tendency to bike shed and try and get in the mud and kind of you know assert my past experience yeah. in 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 people's lives and works which is will, will always turn against you do you have any specific stories or memories that kind of help us see how that how that turned out when it when it didn't turn out so well it's uh, i don't want to like i don't i don't want to quote any specific, i'm trying to kind of find the right balance between yeah. being way too abstract but also not like recounting too specific painful memories but it's just whenever i engage with like engineering teams i always need to keep myself in check not to be like well you all should just like build this thing and then like you know almost like give them like uh, almost like just be one step away from submitting a pull request myself uh, <laughs> which is like because I, I did engineering for a long time and i was a pretty okay engineer and i know my way around a lot of specific topics and you know i, I could still probably with a little bit of dusting off of my skills could still kind of convert back to engineering so it's really tough for me when i like engineering is highly contextual yeah, uh, it's different everywhere, depending on like the history of the stack, the technologies involved, the people involved. Um, so it's easy to just kind of peanut gallery throw in solutions yeah. out of context. So I, I just think that some of the the most unfortunate frictions of my life almost always stemmed from me trying to assert my past experience and like you all should do this or you all should do that because blah blah blah. Um, and that almost never ends well. So yeah. really just kind of being able to say like, here's the context, here's the desired outcome. Yeah. You'll find your own path. You'll like, we've hired you because you're great. Um, yeah. I'm just going to shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, true for product managers that have reported into me, true for engineers, designers, whoever that mm -hmm. we try to lead, uh, it's just you need to know when to like walk away and let people yeah. find their own path. Yeah, I definitely hear that a lot, especially when I talk to other people who came through engineering um, as their way here, that it it's hard because you feel like you want to help, right? And you, you're like, okay, I'm like, can I help you with this? And then you're like, oh, wait, no, actually, maybe helping is me stepping back and saying, here's the context you need to make the plan yourself. Right, and it's it's daunting though, like, this is something that a lot of CEOs struggle with, with building companies because they have a very meticulous vision and they probably have a very clear picture in their heads about how they would execute on that vision. But then they have to hire people and they have to try and articulate that vision to them without being too prescriptive, like allowing professional people to come in and and somehow exert their excellence on it. But still you have to like relinquish control and yeah. let people maybe make a couple of mistakes here and there but still try and have the safety net in place so that those mistakes don't end up costing the farm. Yeah, um, totally. And it's, it really, the more I observe CEOs in action, the more I start empathizing over how massively painful and difficult that must be. Yeah. When, you know, 
you really have to trust people and people don't always live up to that trust and not everybody like we always have these beautiful mantras of like you know you give people space and you give them the ability to seek out the solution themselves and they'll soar and they all don't always do that and you have to still give that space but you have to be able to also handle the negative situations yeah but quite often of course like when people fail it can usually be drawn back to your failure to set the context and set the expectation and set the guidelines right yeah there's always something we could be doing better right. you know like you would always look at what happened and say what could i have done differently to make that go the way i wanted absolutely yeah. um so i'm curious as you talk about that picture it makes me think of um you know places that i've been where either the CEO or the leadership did a great job and everyone understood where they were going. And on the other side, you know, places where maybe people were very confused and um, that caused a lot of challenges. I'm curious to hear sort of from your background, like what, um, you don't have to share specifics of places, but what did it look like when it was done well? What were some practices that, that somebody, whether it was yourself or somebody um, else on the leadership team, uh, did to help the people in the company understand the context and the vision? That's really, I mean, in a way, that's like a million dollar question, because if, if, if there was an easy answer, it would be much easier to build wildly successful companies, because a lot of failure and success really boils down to this difficult question. Um, I hate to try and, and, and answer a really complex problem with uh, simplistic answers, but I do think it really boils down to the leadership's ability to focus. Almost always when I've seen it go wrong, it's been either like wishy-washy and ambiguous mission setting yep. or like complete lack of focus, like, you know, vision and mission statements that are just littered with commas and ands and just kind of, or like way too abstract words. So it's just like, we basically do everything for everyone. And at that point, no roadmap will save you. No attempt downstream to make it more crystal clear won't, will like, will do anything. Like focus and like clarity and sense of purpose has to start from the top yep. to a point where it feels like overblown, where it really feels like, well, this sounds too simplistic. Um, but it really like, being able to rally the troops, especially when you're starting to talk about companies that are bigger than, you know, that you can fit in one room. Like you start talking about over 50, over 100, over 500, over 1,000. You can't just kind of trust word of mouth and like a couple of pretty slides here and there to carry the mission. It has to be something that, that not only you can narrate to a person sitting in front of you, but you trust that that person can then tell 10 people who can then tell, tell 10 people and that message will stay the same. And that requires a ridiculous amount of simplification. Yeah, It has to be like a point that you can just hammer and hammer and hammer on over and over again. And usually whenever you see groups of people rally together in and like executing in successful and magically aligned ways, it really comes from a sense of focus. Like, What are we exactly doing? Who are we doing it for? Why does it matter? Why are we different? And if, not all, if those points aren't hit in like a very unambiguous way, 
part of the game will already have been lost. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. I, I wish there were easier answers, right? And it, it didn't, but it was, uh, you just say, hey, here's the, here's what it looks like. And everyone could just go and do it. But it's so complex because there's so many people involved in, in a company of that size. And Right. And context, like another thing I've learned in my journeys is that context is king. Mm-hmm. Right? Quite often, and this is something that we're all, especially in product management, I feel like we're often guilty of that we love to find universal truisms that you can distill in 140 characters or 280 characters. Now we've <laughs> given ourselves a little bit more slack, but like these simple truisms that we feel like can be extrapolated to like every single thing, when in fact, most problems and most solutions and most successes are highly contextual and what's worked somewhere doesn't necessarily work at all in a different context. And that context doesn't even have to be like night and day. It can be just like a minor difference and suddenly you have to start from scratch. Yeah, definitely. So what are some of the things that that you plan to do the next time that you're helping somebody build a great team or um, a great organization that you've uh, figured out maybe through trial and error or if they're getting it wrong, but you're like, okay, next time I'm not going to do it that way. Or, you know, I'm going to do this next time. I guess building on the whole context is king thing. Um, I think I've, I've, I've been saying this for a long time, but I think I finally really feel it in, or have internalized this, but I'm actually going to listen. I mean, start from a lot of listening. Yep. Um, I think it's been a part of just kind of my growing as a or maturing as a professional where like the earlier you are in your career and the more like hungry you are to show your worth the faster you're going to jump into like like asserting yourself and like all right let me show you how things are done let me like rah 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 i'm just going to like run the show um but then the earlier you jump in to the driver's seat and you want to like call the shots um the less context you have and the less awareness you have of of um, what are the obstacles and what are the opportunities you have as a change agent? Because ultimately like that's a lot of what we call product management still revolves around how do we change the environment to one that actually allows for good product management work. Quite rarely you can just kind of like go into a, a company and just like, cool, let's start product management managing. And then like, magically things will happen quite often it's like an exercise in change management how do we change the organization how we change the processes the communication the culture the the whole nine yards and like product management in an ideal scenario is like it's easy it's fun it's really cushy but that said though that environment exists almost nowhere yep so change management or change agency which is like what our job ends up often being is ridiculously hard and not just hard it's tedious work it's it really is like painful and it requires enormous amounts of patience and kind of understanding different personalities and how to interact with them and me being a Finnish human being I really suck at that and it's really like a concerted effort to like overcome my, my, my cultural hindrances. But I really think that I'm finally mature enough that I'm comfortable in just like leaning back and listening and understanding. Mm-hmm. Because only 
through that, you can start understanding what what platform are you building on. Yeah. Because almost always when you just start kind of brute force change agencing or like changing through authority, you start running into people who behave irrationally when like you're, oh, but this person should like benefit from these things that I'm trying to do. But what you're not realizing is you're either insulting decisions they've done in the past or you're not articulating well enough the value that they're going to get out of this or they're so mired in failure that they think that this is just yet another distraction that will fail or it's putting them in jeopardy or their like their role and their you know their position in wherever they are in jeopardy or there's just like a myriad of things yeah. that you don't realize when you just approach things as like uh, like abstract problems to solve or almost like computer that doesn't boot up. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that I, I see a lot and, uh, and that I used to be guilty of too, is sort of that mentality of like, there's a problem here. We need to fix it. it let's, let's attack it the way an engineer would attack a problem. Right. And forgetting the, the human element of the human equation. Right. And saying, Wait, it's, it's not just about, you know, optimizing the company's resources and, and saying, well, why can't you change what you're doing? Cause we're wasting money over there. Like, there's people and you need the people to make up the company. So you have to work with the people. Right. And people unfortunately react really badly to abrupt change. Yes. So it's, it's, and that's one part that I've found specifically difficult is that quite often the things that we need to do are actually quite dramatic changes where multiple things change at once and you actually only get value from it if almost all of those changes are done. It's like incremental change has almost zero perceivable value. Yeah. But you have to be able to push incremental change to make it more palatable for people. So you have to change one small behavior at a time. But usually to justify change, you need to see like perceivable improvement. So that's like a tough thing to, to like tough needle to thread when like you need to make a big change, which is hard, uh, like psychologically. So you need to make small changes, but those are hard if there's like no clear perceivable value. So how do you then help people and not just like single people, but like larger groups of people who all have different hope streams and kind of mental, mental states or mental preparedness for change? How do you like usher all of those people through a major change? Yeah. Those are really difficult parts. Yeah. And they take so much patience. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's not the glamorous, it's not the glamorous side of the job. Nope. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering um, if there's anything, you know, in this journey, you mentioned um, a couple of different size companies like, uh, you know, consulting, working with Nokia, small companies, uh, bigger companies like Shutterstock. Have you noticed anything um, that you think really makes it different to be a product manager at these different size companies? Um, for sure. I mean, size is definitely one big factor in mm -hmm like how different the work can be. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of other company characteristics that also like impact what it's like to do product management. Um, a lot of the companies that do, like that create good product management environments at scale usually kind of adhere to 
my one of my favorite Twitter jokes that there's no big data. There's just a lot of small data. Mm-hmm. Um, the same can be said about teams. Like there's like there's no big teams. There's just a lot of small teams in one team. So if you can start scaling by divide and conquer and allowing for like smaller teams to emerge and then find ways to like usher them together and align them. That's how you're going to create success. But then quite often in larger companies, you see just a boatload of small teams that are so deeply interconnected that you can't really lead them without like leading every single one of them and handholding every step of the way, which ends up being highly unscalable and usually susceptible to disaster. So, yeah, I mean, when it comes to scale, like I really always appreciated the way Nokia approached it. And like they, when you talk about scale, like they were ridiculous at scale. I, I'm, we're talking about like 2006, 2007, when mm-hmm. Nokia was at like 55% market share over like global handset market. Like yeah. we're talking ridiculous size and market dominance that, you know, nobody's ever going to have in the mobile, mobile phone space. Um, so they were like some of the initiatives that we we're doing were like, there was like a team in Bangalore, a team in Boston, team in Helsinki, team in Berlin, and then operating on like this big scrum of scrums. But they really did, did do like autonomous teams working on clearly defined missions that then would ultimately lead ladder up to a larger vision well. But then again, in hindsight, if you look at kind of Nokia's like product strategy in terms of like, oh, there's like a different mobile phone model for every single micro micro segment. And oh, we're pushing like 50 different devices out every year and nobody really knows. Like we're naming them XF1573G something <laughs> and nobody really understands what the heck differentiates what handset. And oh, this one comes with music and this one comes with a keyboard. This one comes with a flip flop something. So, I mean, they definitely missed the cue in terms of like catering to what the market really needs, mm-hmm. but they, at least they were operating very well. Mm-hmm. Um, even if like the, the outcome wasn't that pretty, but that definitely taught me a lesson or two about like how you can actually just operate at scale while still making it feel not at scale on the grassroots. Yeah. Which I think that's like an important, important part about success at scale is that on the ground, you don't really even necessarily realize you're a part of something like on your day to day, like your most important thing is like the 10 or so people immediately around you. Um, And if the machinery is led properly, you can just live in that bubble and not worry between macro and micro all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like the, um, that's like the gold standard that people are striving for, right. Where you have uh, such a big organization with so many resources that you can attack really big problems, but everybody on the teams feels like they're part of a small team and they know what they're doing and they're able to move towards it. And, you know, if they feel like they need to change, they can go to another team in the organization and it's almost like having a new job, but um, you know, they've still got that larger family. Right. But not, not a lot of people are willing to do the work to make that possible because ultimately yeah. like what people aren't telling you is you can't just like draw a new org chart and be like, okay, now we have all these like little micro teams and they're all super autonomous and you know, you all have fun. 
yeah. that usually ends up in really unhealthy siloing or like yep. fragmentation of like nothing's aligned, nothing's directionally compatible and just yeah. ends up in like weird warring micro factions in the company because in order to do that and in order to like achieve what like Facebook and Spotify and whoever who, who are doing autonomous yet aligned teams at scale have done, which is really design the entire organization, the entire tech stack, the entire product architecture, everything in support of that. And that's tough when you have to design like teams that don't have to be synchronously dependent on each other, that allows for asynchronous dependencies, that allows for like internal product suites, but not like, like, internal product offerings over internal service organizations yeah. where whenever you're trying to create value, um, you're always dependent on like a dozen teams to like deliver. So that's hard. Like it's really hard to enable autonomous value creation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big organizational challenge that um, uh, the companies that have managed to do it pretty well are totally killing it you know they're they're growing so fast they're huge names everybody you know um is excited about what they're doing or maybe scared (laughs) but um but there's a lot of companies that try to do that and fail along the way right right but they they haven't kind of followed that like you know whether you know pixar rule or whoever of like like trying to identify blockers for innovation and attacking them ruthlessly because nothing blocks innovation more than like weird dependency chains and having to like committee design things because you need to get 20 different people aligned at all times. Like innovation happens in small pockets and like high performing small teams. So if you're really committed to removing obstacles from innovation, you're going to try your darndest to set your organization up in a way that allows for those kinds of pockets to form. Yep. And like allowing like that heightened sense of ownership, heightened sense of focus, like space for innovation, all that stuff to really come to be mm-hmm. as opposed to allowing like weird dependency chains and like these, you know, only way to create value is to like rally half the company in support of your initiative. Yeah. Like, there's no way to innovate in that environment yeah. whatsoever. So one of the things that I think um, has a role in, or I'm curious your thoughts of, does it have a role is, uh, you know, this idea of OKRs, right? Like we hear a lot about objectives and key results and certain teams that are doing it. Do, do you think that plays into creating that kind of uh, environment for the autonomous teams and, and how does it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> OKRs are definitely a hot topic and I know that, for almost any um, trendy tool out there, there's going to be far more like loud critics mm-hmm. than uh, supporters of those tools. And, you know, uh, like OKRs are definitely one of those where nine times out of 10, when you witness them in the wild, it's just like face palm city. Um, <laughs> <laughs> OKRs are like, it's it's a really amazing tool, but it's another one of those things where like the responsibility of wielding them, like you need to do more than like a 10 minute training to understand what they are, but not a lot of companies, not a lot of leadership teams, not a lot of like individuals really want to pay that price of understanding how to execute on them and what the real value you get out of them is. And 
they end up being like a performance management tool or like, oh, my bonuses are tied to this or that you know, metric that the OKR dictates. Or they're like used as like a road mapping tool where most of your OKRs are just like, build this system, build that system, blah, blah, blah. And it's not like that's really missing the point. Yep. Um, or they end up being so abstract that they don't mean anything to like, you know, make a great business and revenue up by 500%. And people are like, cool, whatever I do has no re- direct relevance to that. Yeah. So like setting good OKRs is ridiculously hard. But when you get there, they're very powerful. Like if you get to that point where, you know, every person is a part of a team that has a set of OKRs where, or when I say set, that can also mean one OKR. And in a good focus scenario, it actually is one OKR where the objective is something so aspirational and kind of qualitative and inspirational. That it's really like, yes, this is what I'm going to, this is what we're doing. Yes. And then the KRs are clearly quantitative, clearly something that is a little bit scary and, and worrisome and kind of really pushes people to like strive for greatness. And then most importantly, they ladder up to something bigger yep. in a way that makes sense. But every person should, when they look at their team's OKR, should feel like they're not just like expected to execute against it, but they're also empowered to autonomously deliver it. But quite often it ends up being like, cool, the engineering team was beholden to a revenue target, but then the sales team didn't deliver or whatever, like weird, yeah. like, you know, your OKRs is really something that you can even really move the needle on. Yeah. Or like, you know, the product team was expected to, you know, you know, raise a certain business metric, but everybody knows that the easiest way to do that is to deliver a new tool to marketing. But then the delay of that, that gain is actually more kind of, um, like CapEx style where the benefit is not, doesn't materialize in this quarter. It materializes as a percentage increase over the following quarters, which is like, cool. Like that OKR doesn't translate to what we understand to be the smartest thing to do for the business right now. So in those situations where it's like the OKRs don't really mean a thing or they push you to do things that you know are not necessarily the smartest thing for the business, it's like, great. Why did we spend all this time doing this? Yeah. Sometimes it's just um, quarterly planning repackaged. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And then what you end up getting is OKRs that aren't really OKRs and quarterly plans that aren't really quarterly plans and kind of get the worst of all worlds involved. <laughs> and more confusion. And and more people who are like, oh, OKRs sucked. We tried them and they really just sucked. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, all right, cool. Like, you didn't yeah. really do OKRs. You did quarterly planning in disguise. Exactly. So um, I think we're, uh, uh, I'm almost running out of time. So I want to see if there's any final thoughts that you want to share. Like, uh, you know, what is, um, we've talked a lot about challenges and I guess I'm curious to go the other way. Like what excites you about being in product management? The pace at which, product management as a competency and as a skill and as a craft and an art form is developing. It's like we've gone from product management being like a thing that nobody even knew they needed to now being a thing that every company already knows that they need. 
to then being on the cusp of people actually understanding what product does. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, we're you know, nowhere near that. I mean, we're still at a point where every single company has a drastically different understanding of what product is. But I think it's like the story around it is tightening every single, I, know, I was going to say year, but almost month. Like we're seeing more and more thought leaders emerge. We're seeing more and more people start like banging on the drum of like, this is what product does. This is what it sometimes does. This is what it definitely doesn't do. Starting to see kind of products, like successful product people, successful product stories that clearly tell a story of like what we do. Um, there's a whole lot of work to do. Like there's a whole lot of internal debates in the product community, depending on kind of what flavor of product person are you? Some people are like, oh, we shouldn't be involved in process at all. And some people, myself some, sometimes included, are like, I definitely want to be very involved in process because ultimate, not because I think process is a part of product, it ultimately isn't. But when process is effed up, product is the one that's suffering. But it's almost like I, I really implicitly want to be a part of it because if it's not going well if it's or if it's something that's like oh that's engineering's problem that's really missing the mark product's job is to bring all these different skill sets together and if we try and push the art of aggregating these skills to other people we're not going to be in an environment where our job is going to matter so just these little things of like how does our industry work how do we work cross-functionally what is product's contribution to it I'm really happy to see it move forward. And that's really exciting because I, I know that that means that I'm going to have much more fun jobs in the future and people who are disciplined will have much more fun and much more like successful careers moving forward. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was great to talk with you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And good luck with the podcast in the future. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tommy Forstrom. You can find him on Twitter at Forsto, F-O-R-S-S-T-O. Or you can use the same handle on Medium and Tiny Letter to follow him online. Thanks for listening. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.